Welcome to ARBcast, Water Island Capital's podcast series where we strive to provide our investors with concise and timely insights into the world of event-driven investing. I'm your host, Lindsay Fitzpatrick, and today I'll be joined by John Arico, the founder and CIO of Water Island Capital, to get his views on the environment for merger arbitrage. We're also going to be celebrating 20 years of the Arbitrage Fund's success. John, welcome. Hi, Lindsay. Happy to be here with you today. So tell us, as you look back on the past 20 years, how do you feel about the journey that you've been on since launching the Arbitrage Fund? Well, I have to tell you, Lindsay, looking back, I can't believe it's been 20 years. Uh, it's been an exciting two decades, and um, you know, I, I never could have predicted 20 years ago uh, the types of experiences I would have individually and as part of a larger firm. And, you know, when I think about that first day by myself in an office uh, launching this fund uh, and and all the work we've done over two decades, we're now nearly, you know, 50 people strong uh, with a broadened skill set, employing uh, capital across the event-driven landscape and multiple strategies and multiple vehicles and uh, it's 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 really exciting and I think I think what I'm most proud of uh, is the team uh, that I sit with and the people around me in the firm that have been so instrumental in the firm's success over the last two decades and, and I'm really thankful for that. Well, as you look back to the year 2000, what was your motivation behind launching the arbitrage fund? I believe at that time there were only a handful of mutual funds offering hedge strategies, correct? Yeah, that's right. You know, the the term alternative or liquid alternatives hadn't even been coined back in 2000. And you know, for you know, for me, I had I come out of the you know the the family office environment, and and the merger arb strategy is a big part of the portfolio construction. Uh, for not only family offices, but for uh, pension funds and other institutional investors, and it, as a non-correlated uh, strategy, one that's one that uh, uh, marches to a different beat, uh, uh, not correlated with the equity markets or the fixed income markets, it was a big part of the capital preservation strategy for those institutional investors. And you know, capital preservation is still a key part of this firm's philosophy and this fund's philosophy. So. You know, back then, I thought about how the family offices, the institutions, the pension funds were all employing the merger arp strategy in parts of their portfolios. And I thought it really makes a lot of sense for financial advisors and and and, uh, and retail investors to have access to the strategy if if they felt that it was important in the construction of their own portfolios. So to roll the strategy out in a 40-act fund – was really you know took a lot of work and and, and and some time, but clearly it was a it was well worth the effort and our clients you know over the years have been have been i think happy with with uh, the way the strategy has augmented uh the construction of their portfolios John, in terms of your approach to employing capital in the merger arb strategy. How has it evolved for the arbitrage fund and even for you over the past 20 years? Well, Lindsay, it's been a sea change in terms of 
how we approach the markets and how we construct portfolios today versus 20 years ago or 30 years ago uh, when I was involved uh, in the strategy at the family office level. And what I mean by that is uh, uh, the the talent that we have on the investment team bench, it's now 15 people strong. We have teams both in New York and London focused on the global landscape for merger transactions. And what what that allows us to do is bring the types of skill sets to the table that are key to investing successfully in today's environment. And what I mean by that is uh, we have individuals on the team that focus on the forensic accounting and the deep dive required to understand the financial metrics associated with each party to a deal. And then, of course, understanding what the pro forma models look like when we model out that financial profile to ensure that what the numbers tell us, t- tell us dovetails with the strategic rationale that's been outlined by the merging parties. And then stepping beyond that work, we have folks on the team that are experts in the regulatory frameworks that operate within each, within each of the jurisdictions in which we invest. And to understand the roadmap by which the regulators will view and vet those deals is, is really important to success in the strategy. Um, the folks on the team that focus on the contract law that underlie or underpin each of the merger contracts is extremely important as well. And clearly, as you know, 2020 has shown us, as well as other periods, where there's been stress in the market environment. It's those merger contracts that are foolproof and strong that survive the day in terms of market stress. And and really understanding the nuances of those merger agreements is is key to our business. Um, So, you know, we wrap all of those skill sets together, um, and it really makes for what I think is one of the strongest event-driven investment teams in the industry today. And that's really our goal, um, is to cover all the bases, and to, you know, be the best uh, that we can be in terms of uh, the strategies that, that we're pursuing. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot more that comes into play here uh, in terms of the strengths and the skill sets within the firm that help make that investment team successful. But, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll say this, uh, uh, I'm, I'm really proud of the, of the talent uh, that, that I work alongside of every day at the shop. I know another one of the things that you're incredibly proud of is the evolution that you witnessed in terms of how technology is really, really become a tool that um, the arbitrage fund and your entire team relies upon. Could you expand on that a little bit for us? Well, sure. I mean, thinking about technology broadly, I mean, there hasn't been an industry that hasn't been impacted by technological change and in the embrace of technology over the last couple of decades. And, and we're no different, and our industry is no different. But for Water Island, you know, we've begun a decade ago to make investments in technology to first help us manage risk across our portfolios. That was a key part of the evolution of this firm. And really to build those sophisticated tools and models uh, to help us understand the risks not only associated with each individual transaction, but then when we aggregate those across a portfolio, uh, to look at those aggregate risks uh, in across different geographies, across uh, uh, different risk factors, whether they be 
of regulatory, political, um, every risk factor you can imagine that comes into play across the deal environment. It's been key to, to us mitigating and managing risk across the portfolios, and I think we've gotten better at it every year. Um, we've employed that technology uh, through our risk team and our software team. Uh, we have software programmers that work working with the investment team every day to help us build the types of risk frameworks and risk mitigation tools that we can use in real time to address what's happening in the marketplace in real time as we respond to news flow uh, and market volatility every day. So I think that you know technology across our trading platforms, uh, across our risk management platforms, uh, when we more broadly across our operations team and across all aspects of the firm, the way compliance can take a look at our portfolios and understand how we're allocating capital across multiple funds and multiple strategies and using that data to help our clients have better transparency into our portfolios and where we're where on a specific transaction level we're adding value or detracting value from returns is is really important to provide that I think to our clients and, and being transparent um, I think the more transparent we can be as investors to the investors that have entrusted their capital to us, I think is one of the key factors that will drive our success going forward as well. Obviously, this year in particular, we have seen some just incredible, unexpected things happen in our world. And I'm speaking, obviously, of, of the global pandemic of COVID-19. Has the merger landscape changed dramatically this past year as a result of that? And if so, just walk us through what that looked like and, and where you're seeing things stand today. Sure. Yeah, I mean, this year has been unique, unlike any year uh, since I've been in the industry, which goes back quite a few years. And um, and even since the launch of the arbitrage fund, we've witnessed periods of market stress. We've witnessed some dramatic sell-offs. We've gone through the tech bubble and, and the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. Um, so every crisis is different. And I think that, uh, of course, we've been practicing merger art for 20 years now. And, and th those experiences, you know, have made us better at what we do. But what we do see in terms of similarities is really around investor behavior. Um, so when we think about what happened this year uh, with COVID as the crisis that really disrupted markets and disrupted economies, um, investors in March really, you know, uh, went through a liquidation phase. Some people call it panic, or but it's really a reach for liquidity. And of course, that took place across almost all asset classes. And when that happens, we have to look for opportunities where that liquidation, that panic phase. Uh, presents a unique return opportunity for our investors, and it and it has to come within the context of understanding what it is you're buying, uh, because when we go through that liquidation phase, investors are selling everything that they can out of their portfolios. When the ETFs are liquidating, they're selling a broad basket of equities. They don't discern between those equities uh, that are subject or parties to merger contracts and those that aren't. So everything is tossed out. And, and for us as merger arbitrageurs, that's going to be an opportunity for us. We're going to see spreads widen significantly. We're going to see panic selling. 
And if we've done our work, if we understand the merger contracts, if we understand the drivers of the fundamentals or the fundamentals of the particular businesses in which we invest, um, if we understand the regulatory environment, we're going to be able to put capital to work into those transactions that are as solid before the panic as after the panic. And that's really important because it means we have to live with some volatility in our portfolios. But our portfolios are populated with parties to a contract, multiple merger contracts. And to have the skill set and the capabilities to discern between which of those contracts will survive the pandemic or the economic stress and which won't is really important to success in the strategy. And I think, you know, we think about our investment opportunities and the merger arb landscape from the standpoint of pre-COVID and post-COVID. So those transactions that were inked prior to the crisis are either going to close or they're not going to close based on what's happening fundamentally to each of those businesses and how strong the merger contracts are. And for those transactions that have been inked post the COVID crisis, we're looking at a different opportunity set. And that may be that something similar to what we saw following the 2008 crisis, where the deals that were struck following that market stress as the markets were covered, in hindsight, many of those deals looked very inexpensive from the standpoint of the target companies, which then attracted multiple bidders to the table to outbid for that deal that was currently on the table. So um, there are lots of considerations that we have to think about when we go through a crisis like the one we went through. So having experienced the panic or the liquidation phase, then we go into that phase where we've got to discern between those deals that will still survive following the COVID crisis and the economic shock that's taken place. And then looking at the new deals in the pipeline and the new deals that have been struck are going to be opportunities, potential opportunities for other bidders to show up. But it's also different in that we're seeing deals out of necessity as well. Companies that need to enter into merger contracts with partners in order to strengthen their balance sheets and improve their odds of survival. So there's a, there's a, a, a period in April and May where deal flow was quite small and, and, and I think everyone was frozen. In June, we started to see deal flow pick up. It accelerated in July. And by August, we were, I'd say, back to pre-COVID levels in terms of deal flow. But the profile of those deals were different and the merger contracts guiding those deals were different as well. So, you know, our team is prepared from from the framework of understanding the merger contracts, the regulatory frameworks, uh, the financial modeling, uh, and looking at each of those transactions from the standpoint of how the macroeconomic drivers are going to impact the fundamentals of each of those parties to a deal so that we can assess whether or not we're earning an adequate rate of return associated with the risks that we underwrite in each of those transactions. And when we look back on 2009, it was one of the most prolific years for hostile bidding and counterbids coming out of that financial crisis. And we think later this year into 2021, we'll see a lot of bidding activity as well uh, for assets that are trading at levels well below where they traded uh, 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 you know, 
pre-COVID. John, you know, the experiences that you and your team have endured and, and learned from, as well as the calm and measured approach that you're describing you and your team taking is, is certainly reassuring and confidence-inspiring for investors. But realistically, there have to be some things that keep you up at night. What would you say that those things are today? Well, yeah, well, I, I think that our, 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 our investors, uh, you know, should know that as risk arbitrageurs, um, most of our time is spent analyzing and studying those factors that may influence any particular deal in a negative way. We're thinking about really what could go wrong. That's our job. Be prepared for that. That'll either help us identify an opportunity or decide to put capital to work or not in any transaction based on our current outlook and all the drivers of each particular transaction. But typically, you know, that's the things that we think about are, are not just what's happening today, but where we where we think there may be risks three, six, or nine months out. And of course, you know, we're in an we're in an election cycle in the U.S. and and you know the impact on uh, regulatory policy from an antitrust perspective can change dramatically with a change in administrations. So we're thinking about that for late 2020 into 2021 for those deals that have been inked that are still pending. Um, we're focused on the fundamentals. You know, the impact of COVID is by no means over, and there are many sectors of the economy which continue to struggle. And, and you know, we have to think about that in the context of whether monetary and fiscal policy is going to last and what type of lasting impact it may have on different sectors of the economy. Um, so understanding the fundamentals that underlie each party to a transaction is super important. And then, of course, we look at the merger contracts, and that's where all the hard work is done. And, and you know, what I mean by that is as we move through any crisis, the contracts by which the parties draft their merger agreements or the framework for those agreements always changes, and they always address you know, the elephant in the room. So most of the merger contracts that we see inked today speak specifically to carve-outs associated with health pandemics. And what I mean by that is the parties agree that they can't walk away from a transaction because of the impact that a health pandemic has on their underlying business. And we saw many changes take place after the 2007-2008 crisis in terms of the language in merger contracts. So the parties to a deal and their lawyers, of course, get smarter as they learn more. But I think for, for our team, you know, it's, it's really understanding how those contracts are drafted and what the opportunity is for one of the merging parties to take an action that might disrupt the deal uh, later on down the road. Well, Don, it has been so interesting to take a peek back at your journey over the past 20 years with the Arbitrage Fund and, and just to learn how much it has evolved. Um, I'm sure, just like our listeners are, I'm very curious to know what is the outlook now for Water Island Capital? What are, how are you thinking about your business going forward? 
Well, you know, our, as we think about the business going forward, our guiding principle, or I, I think the thing we, we, we talk about most within the firm and across the entire firm is how do we best serve our clients? Um, how do we ensure that we continue to evolve and, and employ best practices across the firm? And that's in terms of compliance and operations and shareholder servicing and, of course, on the investment and risk teams as well. Um, the continued embrace of technology to help us leverage our skill set over more clients and more accounts. And, 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 and of course, we've broadened out over the last two decades across the event-driven landscape beyond just Merger Arb. Um, and it's important that, that as a firm, we don't employ any strategy that we're not prepared for. Um, I, as I said earlier, I think we have a, one of the best event-driven teams in the industry today. And I think our, uh, coupled with our our software developers and our risk team, I think we, we have a real value proposition to offer investors. But first I want to say thank you to all those clients whose trust we've earned and who've chosen us to safeguard their clients' capital. You know, when I look forward, uh, investing in our people and our infrastructure is important, but it all, it all goes towards ensuring that we serve our clients best. And, you know, I talked about the adoption of technology. Um, we listen to our clients and we work with them to ensure that we can develop the solutions that they need to help their client portfolios. Um, you know, and we're lucky today. This firm manages capital for some of the most sophisticated financial institutions in the country. We do that through institutional accounts, separate accounts. And one thing I'll say I couldn't be prouder of the skills that we have in the firm and the professionals that come to work every day looking to improve our clients' experience with us. That's what I'm most proud of, and that's what we continue to focus on. It's the talent that we have in the firm, um, and it's keeping them engaged in a way that will keep them engaged with our clients. So um, that's really that's really you know the the focus uh, for us for the next 10 or 20 years, Lindsay. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. Uh, once again, congratulations on the Arbitrage Fund's 20 successful years. We cannot wait to see all that's in store for you as, as we move forward. But um, for all of our listeners, we thank you for joining us today. And if you want any information on us or our funds, please visit arbitragefunds.com or call our resource desk at 1-800-560-8210. Again, John, thank you so much. And listeners, we look forward to you joining us on our next ARBcast. Have a great day.